Good morning, my name is Kyle. If you have a Bible, would you turn to that passage that Joyce just read for us in the book of Revelation? If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back on the round table for you. Take one, it's, uh, it's free. I really enjoy, and um, it's one of the highlights of my week to worship with you. Uh, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, um, I am encouraged. Uh, for some of you, I know worship maybe is new, and if worship is new for you, uh, I want you to know that um, I realize that coming into a new community and worshiping can feel very uncomfortable. But while coming to a church and worshiping may feel new and uncomfortable, uh, I, I also want you to know that you should know that you're a natural. You are a natural. You actually know how to worship. You may not know that, but you do. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary defines worship as being in great admiration or devotion towards some person or thing or principle. And who of us, who among us, is not in adoration or devotion to some person or principle? It's what gets us up in the morning. You see, you are a worshiper. The question is not, will you worship or do you worship? The question is, is are the things that we worship, are they worthy of our worship? In the book of Revelation, John is writing to give people a vision of Jesus. That they might know that Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of worship. And he's trying to show us as he writes to these seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. That Jesus is better and greater than all the other things that would vie for our allegiance. We come this week to the church in Thyatira. Thyatira was not a very notable town. Uh, they didn't have much industry there to speak of. We don't have much historical record uh, of the place at all. We do know one thing, that they had this particular um, trade that they were very proud of. See, they knew how to make bronze, like, and they had this special way of making bronze that was unique to them. In other words, Thyatira was kind of like Grasmere. How many of you have been to Grasmere? You've been to Grasmere? Grasmere is a city in the Lake District. It's, calling it a city is really a misnomer. It is a village. Uh, it's less than a village. I don't know what you get less than a village, but it's less than a village. But it's famous for one thing. They make this amazing ginger. So I don't like ginger, but I like it there because it's like not like ginger you've ever had. And they do all things ginger, and they're very proud of their ginger, right? And there's not much else there to speak of, but they have ginger, and that's what, that's saving the place. Well, Thyatira had bronze, and that's what was saving this little town. And what does this little town have to do with us? And what does it have to do with worshiping Jesus? Well, let me pray for us as we consider it. Risen, ascended, exalted Jesus Christ, you are enthroned in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, who has given you all rule and power, authority and dominion. Magnify yourself through the preaching of the good news, the good news that you are victorious, 
that you reign and that you reign in love for sinners. We pray these things that your name might be honored and that the Lamb might have the rewards of his sufferings. Amen. Well, it was around about 2010, and three friends were sitting around a kitchen table. And it was one of those nights where the energy was flowing and the ideas were popping out, and they were thinking about starting a new business. As they started brainstorming together, one starts writing down an idea, then another, then they, they, get the, they get the pads, they get the paper, they get the pens, they're writing it all down, and they got really excited. They constructed over three hours that night a whole business plan. You see, they were going to start a microbrewery. And listen, remember, this is 2010, before our towns got saturated with microbreweries. They were going to start a microbrewery, and it was going to be great, but they were, all, they were all dads with young families. And they're working in their early career, and they're going, I don't know, this is kind of risky. Well, two of them went on to start what is now called St. Archer Brewing Company. One of them thought it was too risky. That was 2013 when St. Archer started, March 2013. In 2014, they won a gold medal for the Great American Beer Festival. In 2015, they won, uh, or in 2014, they also won five medals at the San Diego Brewing Festival. And then in 2015, they were bought out by Miller Coors, Big Beer, for what is estimated to be $35 million. You know that, that guy who decided that it wasn't worth the risk? I wonder what he was thinking then. If I'd only known. If I'd only known $35 million in two years, I mean, that's, that's not too bad, right? Not too bad. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> maybe could do better, but I'd I'd go with that. I mean, who couldn't hold on? Who couldn't make it work? Who couldn't eat beans and rice for two years for a cut in $35 million? And and sometimes I think we think, if, if if I'd only known now what I knew then, then I could have held on. If I'd held on, then I'd have been on top. Well, the church in Thyatira, they, they are struggling to, to know about the future. And they are being tempted. Tempted to, to have some secret knowledge about what the future holds. And if they can only have this secret knowledge, then they believe they will be on top. They will come out on top. They are wooed, verse 24, to study the deep things of Satan. Of course, they probably didn't call it the deep things of Satan. They probably said they were the deep things of God. As some false teacher came and said, come on, if you just have these things, if you just know this, then you will come out on top. And Jesus writes to them and says, no, no. Anything in addition to me is satanic because it's leading you away from me. 
I lay no other burden on you, verse 24, only this, verse 25, only hold fast, hold on to what you have until I come. Just hold on. And if you hold on, if you hold on to me, you will come out on top. Verse 26, to to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule with an iron rod as with earth and pots are broken to pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. These are images from the culture and from the Old Testament about Jesus' sovereign rule over the world. The morning star was a picture of sovereignty and dominion. This uh, talk of authority over the nations and ruling them with an iron rod goes back to Psalm 2 and talks about the Messiah who would be given power and dominion over all the nations. And Jesus says, if you hold on to the end, you will come out on top. You will share in my sovereignty. And he says the same thing to you and me. Hold on to me. Hold on to what you have. But what does it look like? What does it mean to hold on? How do we hold on? How do we hold fast? Three ways. Three ways in this passage. The first way that we hold on is we hold on through growing, through growth. Notice that when Jesus commends this church in Thyatira, he commends them, verse 19, because their latter works exceed the first. And if their latter works exceed the first, that means, guess what? They are growing. They're growing. I, uh... I was once counseling this couple, and I figured out how they met. They met, they were on State Street, and this gal was here, and she was um, studying English, as we have lots of English language schools here. And as she's studying English, uh, she decided to go out and take part in one of the parades, and she's walking down the street, and this guy catches her. And he says, I want to know who that is. So he follows her, and he meets her. After he meets her, he He runs into her again. He figures out where she is, and he strikes up a conversation. He gets her number, and then he takes her out on a date. Now, she knows English um, not very well uh, because she's only been studying it for a few weeks. Uh, And he did not know her native tongue, Portuguese. But, uh, But he was smitten. And so he knew that if he wanted to hold on to this, he needed to grow in his ability to communicate with her. So you know what he did? Every day after work, he went home and got on Rosetta Stone. And for three to four hours a day, he practiced her language so that when he went and visited her, he could communicate with her and her family. He knew, he knew that because she taught him a couple phrases, but he knew that to hold on to this relationship and to hold on to this good thing, he needed to grow in his ability to communicate. He needed to hold on to what he had by growing. And they are married and together today. One of the ways that we hold on is through growing. And here, the church in Thyatira is holding on by growing. And what areas are they growing in? They're growing, first and foremost, in love. Look, verse 19. I know your works. And then he defines the first of those as your love. They are growing in love. And what if Jesus came to the church at Christ Presbyterian Church, the church here that meets at 36 East Victoria, and he asked us, could he commend us for growing in love? And notice that he's talking corporately and communally. I think we can ask it individually. I think we can also ask it as a body. Are we growing in love? 
Well, how would we know? What would it even look like to grow in love? You know, I think that one of the ways that it looks like, one of the ways that it would look like amongst us, and especially in my own life, is in the way we talk. I think that growing in love means that we stop saying have to and we start saying get to. I think growing in love of our Savior would mean that we would say, um, we would talk less about requirements that the Lord lays upon us and more about invitations to participate in his work. I think that it would mean that we spoke a little less about our duty and more about opportunities that have been given us. You know, for many of us in this room, many of us, myself included, we are very duty-driven people. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with duty. And there's nothing wrong with the first and foremost, uh, uh, and the first and foremost question I think that we ask, though, if we're duty people, is what does the Lord require of me? And you know, some of us need to be asking that question more. What does the Lord require of me? Duty is important, but duty is not, it's not the best. It's suboptimal. Because if we have duty without love, then it's nothing. The Apostle Paul will write in 1 Corinthians. And so what we need is not simply duty and to act out of duty, but we need to act out of Love, what would it look like for me, instead of saying that I have to preach or I have to prepare a sermon, to say, I get to study this passage and I get to present it to God's people and I get to preach the gospel on a Sunday morning. And that's my job. What would it mean if we stopped saying, I have to host a community group and I get to invite people into my home and see Jesus at work in our midst And the pain and trial and the joys and the suffering and the celebration. What would it mean? What if instead of of saying, I have to serve, we said, I get to serve. What if instead of saying, I have to tithe, we got to say, we started saying, we started thinking about is, I get to tangibly participate in providing the livelihood of a minister Someone who is set apart, trained, and fully devoted, full-time to meeting with people and telling them about Jesus and applying Jesus to their heart and sitting with them across from coffee. And you get to be a part of that. And I get to be a part of that. And we get to be a part of churches being planted across the world in places where churches are not planted. And we get to be a part of seeing college students come to know Jesus Christ on the university campus who don't know Jesus Christ. We get to be a part of that. I think that's what it would look like to grow in love. Uh, this church grows in love because they, they, see, they see Jesus as a giver of good gifts and his calling to serve Especially that is a gift. But it's not just love that they grow in. They also grow in their public witness. Uh, 
Jesus goes on to say, I know your works, your love, and then he talks about their faith, their service, and their patient endurance. Now, these phrases, when they're used together in Revelation, they reference the public witness of Jesus and the public witness of the church. What would it look like for us to grow in public witness? And has, if Jesus was to come and he were to say, Christ Presbyterian Church, I commend you, could he commend us for growth in our public witness? Have we grown? I think in a lot of ways we have. I really do. Between our engagement in Serve Santa Barbara, our caring for the orphan, the fatherless, our caring for the poor, I think that that has grown tremendously, uh, our public witness in this city. Uh, it's first Thursday events like we had on Thursday, which increase and grow our public witness where I have conversations with people who would never step into a church and I get to tell them about Jesus as they ask me, is church for me? We're growing in our public witness and in our love of the city. Uh, it, it looks like when, 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 we, when we have over 30 people or 50 people, I don't know, 20 families involved in hosting international students, inviting them into their home, some following up and doing it again and again, that's growing in our public witness. And I think that the Lord could commend us in these things. I really do. I think he would say, well done. You have grown. Keep going. And it also looks like I think we're growing in our public witness in just how we actually do life together in the warp and wolf of the city. It's the fact that the people at Third Window know a lot of us because we're there and we love them. And we love one another there. It really is. That's growing in our public witness. Uh, but I think there are places where we could improve. I think we can improve, one of those places where I think we can improve, where I can improve, is in our evangelism. I think we can improve in developing relationships of trust with our unbelieving neighbors that would give us a platform to invite them to church or be able to speak the gospel into their lives in a way where they know that when we do that, we're doing it out of love because we have listened and we have cared. Uh, I think it looks like hospitality and growing there. We could grow in hospitality. Some of you are great in hospitality, at hospitality, but it's not, it's not a lot of us. We could grow in our hospitality. I mean, we have like between 15 and 35 students who come to this church every week. They are in a crucial time of life and a crucial time of faith. The things that happen during these years, the trajectory for the rest of their lives. And many of them, trust me, I know, I talk to them, are wrestling with whether or not they're going to commit to Jesus or not. And that's true whether or not they're at UCSB or whether or not they're at Westmont or whether or not they're at City College. I've heard it all around. And you have the opportunity to come and to invite them into your home, to share in a meal with them, to take them out to lunch afterwards, to engage them. And don't wait for them to engage you. They're waiting for you to engage them. And to take them out. Do it. They want to know you. And show them what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus 20 years down the line from where they are. 
And it's not just that we have college students. We also, in this, in this congregation, uh, in, in our church service, we have upwards of 10% of folks who are not yet convinced about the claims of Christianity, who would be professing unbelievers. Engage them. Love them. Empathetically listen to what their hang-ups are with Christianity and seek to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Now, I realize that this gets us out of our comfort zones. I realize that this is hard for a lot of us. I mean, as a church, we, we have a lot of gifts, and we have a lot of resources. We have a ton. We're a very bright crowd. We are. We, like, we're a very educated crowd. Uh, we, are, we are a crowd who is very, very, very committed and earnest. We have a high commitment level. We, we have people who, if they're going to be involved, they're involved all the way. And that is commendable. We also have certain things about us that are um, harder for us, weaknesses. We're kind of a shy crowd. Let's be honest. Most of us are shy. We're kind of a socially awkward crowd. Let's be honest. Uh, and because of that, like, we don't have many people who feel comfortable and natural being the social butterfly and work in the room. And for some of us, growing, growing in evangelism and loving people actually means, it actually means that we have to develop skills in things like small talk. It means that we have to get out of our comfort zone and get, develop skills in small talk because that's actually, that's the oil that greases, like, relationships that facilitates further love and trust and care in order to develop and, 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 and invite people and talk about Jesus. It means getting up from your area of the church and seat and, and engaging people with, with a smile, asking questions, caring, following up, when you would rather just be at your home at the end of the day because you've talked to people all day long in your job and you just need some me time. I know. I actually don't know because I'm one of the few extroverts in the church, but <laughs> I empathize with you. But we, we can grow in these areas, I think. For the sake of the gospel, we can go home every day and we can learn to communicate. We can learn a language of people. We can hold on to what we have. We can do our Rosetta Stone and order out of love for Jesus and growth for him and his kingdom and the world that he has given us to grow. That's one of the ways in which we hold fast. Uh, the second way in which I see we holding fast in this text is through discernment. Discernment. You know, one of the things if you read through these seven letters that you notice is that, you know, every church is unique. Every church has its individual struggles. Every church also has its um, things that it's, it's good at. And, you know, in Ephesus, their love had grown cold, but they were doctrinally solid. Right? But in Pergamum and Thyatira, they were strong in love and they were strong in service, but they lacked discernment. Because they lost their sensitivity to error and they failed to discern particularly God's doctrine, God's truth, the Lord's truth. Look in verse 20. 
Jesus says, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now Jezebel is a kind of watchword for uh, this famous or infamous um, wife of King Ahab who was a Canaanite and who led the people of Israel to be involved in idolatrous practices and in sexual immorality. And when, when Jezebel appears here, uh, this is kind of a, a Watts word like it is today. I mean, think about Lauren Hill's breakout album. She talks about the Jezebel, right? Of someone who seduces others in order to get them to engage in idolatry and sexual immorality. And, and the people in Thyatira, in other words, they had become undiscerning because they had followed either this false teacher, Jezebel, or this group. Jezebel could be just a name for a group. Whatever the case, they had become undiscerning. And probably the way it went is it probably went like this. It probably went like something we see, like we see in 1 Corinthians, where they say, well, we know that there's no such thing as an idol, and an idol is nothing. And therefore, because we know that it's just material stuff and that there's only one God, uh, that we can bow before these things and worship these things because it really doesn't mean anything. And Paul says, yes, an idol is nothing. And there's no God but one God. But there are powers that stand behind those statues. Satanic powers which can get a hold of you. And, 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 and so this, this knowledge that they had was really a false knowledge but the thing is, is that they were sincere. They had grown in love. They had grown in service. But they were just undiscerning. We had a college night at my house a couple months ago. And we were discussing this question. With all the differences in Christianity and Christian denominations and the differences that they hold. What do you do with all the doctrinal disagreements? I mean, can you say that any one Christian group is right and any one Christian group is wrong? It's actually a good question. I wonder if you considered it. Now, I believe when we come down to certain doctrinal disagreements with other Christians, we need to have um, humility. It's called epistemic humility. Humility as far as how much we know. Because the reality is, is that the effects of sin have affected all of us and all of our minds and our ways of thinking. The noetic effects of sin is what theologians call it, have affected us all. And so we need to have humility as we engage in these conversations. At the same time, uh, when we say that, I think the way in which a lot of folks want to go from there is to say, well, it really doesn't matter. In fact, as we were going around the table, one of the students said what's very common, and I think voiced uh, an opinion that we all uh, find very compelling, and that's this. I think what matters ultimately is your heart. If your heart's in the right place, it doesn't really matter if you're wrong or right. I understand the sentiment. Everybody around the table, by their uh, verbal and physical um, affirmation, understood the sentiment. It's a, you know, there are a couple places in the scripture, like when these two sons of Aaron offer up strange fire to God, uh, Nahab and Abihu, and God consumes them with fire. Their heart was in the right place. But they weren't worshiping God as he had commanded. Or like 
in the book of 2 Samuel when they come to the threshing floor of Nahum and the Ark of the Covenant is about to fall off of the uh, wagon and this young boy named Uzzah reaches out his hand to catch the ark because he has good intentions and he doesn't want the ark to fall and he doesn't want it to hit the ground and he dies immediately because God had commanded no one touches the ark they had good intentions the people of Thyatira have good intentions. Their heart is in the right place. But they fail to be discerning as far as doctrine is concerned. Good intentions, love is important. Love is preeminent. But we can't have love alone. We also need to care about truth. And that's why in this church we have ways for you to grow in your understanding of the Christian faith. That's why we have spent so much time and money and effort developing our connect materials. So you can actually take those things home and reference them and study them and use them. That's why we've put them online. That's why we've developed uh, connect materials for our children and two sets of children, different age groups, so that you can go through that with them. It's why we have done Christian education evenings in the past. It's why I'll do a midweek study. It's why we have a women's Bible study. It's why, um, it's why we, have, uh, we have gathered an excellent group of youth volunteers to work with your youth. It's why we spend time doing these things, because doctrine matters, and we care that you know how to discern God's truth. And I can't help but thinking that, and I, listen, I know, I know that they aren't all convenient. But when has learning anything been convenient? I played the drums. It was not convenient. It was not convenient for my parents. It was also not convenient for me to figure out how to, how to develop syncopation and use different hands in different ways and your feet in different ways and your hands and develop rhythm. Learning to type was not convenient. I'm really glad I know how to do it now. Playing piano is not convenient. Learning a language, a foreign language, learning is not convenient. It, learning is not convenient. Going home at the end of the day after you've had a hard day of work and sitting down to Rosetta Stone to, work, to learn Portuguese for three hours is not convenient. It's not convenient. But it's important. And I can't help but think that one of the reasons why these things are so poorly attended is that we don't value it as much as we should. And I want you to value it. I want you to value so that you can discern truth from error so that you can discern the Lord's doctrine. But it's not just the Lord's doctrine that we must discern, it's also the Lord's discipline. Uh, look in verses 22 and 23. Jesus writes and he threatens these, uh, these folks who have led off into uh, false prophecy, false teaching. He says, Behold, I will throw her, that is Jezebel, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, and I, will throw, uh, and I will throw into a great tribulation unless they repent of her works. 
and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, this introduces a topic that there's a lot of confusion on, so we need to address it, and that is the topic of the relationship between sickness, suffering, and sin. Now listen to me. Every, every form of sickness and every form of, of suffering is a judgment on sin generally. Adam's sin. We live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. But not every sin, or I'm sorry, not every sickness and every uh, form of suffering, every tribulation is a punishment or a judgment on a particular sin that you have committed and can be traced back to that. Okay? Not everyone can. But some can. Some can. Like in 1 Corinthians 11, when the Corinthians are abusing the Lord's table and Paul says, why do you think some of you are getting sick and dying? Some can. And sometimes the Lord disciplines us Because he loves us. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And he brings suffering and tribulation and sickness into our lives so that we will stop going our rebellious ways and self-destructive ways and return to him. And that's what you see in this text. And we need to discern when the Lord is disciplining us for sin, for our idolatry. And what do we do when we discern that that's happened? Well, that brings us to the last way in which we hold on. Not only through growth, not only through discernment, but also through repentance. Look, verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. And in verse 22, impresses upon uh, the same thing, that what he calls the people who have followed Jezebel to do is to repent, unless they repent of her works. See, why is Jezebel being judged, and why are the people who have followed her being judged? Let's be very clear about this. They are not being judged ultimately for any particular sin that they have committed. They're being judged because they refuse to repent. And that's true of all of us. It's not that some sins are so bad. It's that we have refused to repent and turn to Jesus, who provides salvation for us who stands ready to save. See, he's saying, I gave her time to repent. Jesus is sitting there with his arms wide open saying, come to me, it doesn't matter what you've done, I will heal and restore and forgive. Now I have power to do all those things. Will you just come? And they refuse to come. 501 years ago this week, a young German monk walked across the city of Wittenberg and he nailed 95 declarations on a church castle door. The first of those, that this, this, uh, this act that Martin Luther did, um, well, it started a, a revolution and the consequences and out, outworkings of which have continued on today. He was, starting to, he was trying to start a debate about the selling of indulgences and things that he saw wrong in, with his church. That is, that, that you could actually buy things in order to gain favor with God somehow. 
And Luther said no. In his first thesis, when Luther wrote these 95 theses, these declarations, his first one was this, quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. In other words, what Luther is saying is that repentance is not something that you do initially or occasionally but it's something that you do comprehensively over and over again in the Christian life. That the whole disposition of a Christian life is to repent, and to repent is to turn from sin and to trust in the good news of Jesus Christ and what he provides for sinners. And this continual life of repentance, the fact that it's continual, means that when we repent, we don't just repent generally of sin, but we repent of particular sins particularly. And we turn to Jesus to see what he particularly offers in his gospel to give us and to provide for what we are looking for that sin to provide for us. What would this look like? What does it look like to, 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 to turn of particular sins particularly? Now, are you turning, by the way? What are you repenting of right now? If the whole life is to be of repentance, then the question you need to ask yourself is, what am I repenting of now? What am I seeking to have the gospel alleviate from my life because I'm trying to turn from that sin and, to, uh, to, and turn towards Jesus? What? What does it look like? Well, first, it looks like finding out the sin behind the sin. Let's take an example like lie, lying. Why do you lie? Well, some people lie for reputation, right? It's like when, I, um, when, I, uh, when I'm late and I call someone and I say, traffic's bad. Well, traffic may be bad, but that's not why I'm late. But I say traffic's bad, I'm late. What am I trying to communicate? I'm trying to communicate that I'm really on top of things. It's not my fault, and I want to stay and have a good reputation in your, in your eyes. That's why I lie in that moment, right? And so what I need to realize is that Jesus gives me a name, that my reputation in him is intact. And because of that, I can actually tell the truth. You know, uh, I'm late because, um, because I care more about myself and my own schedule, and I know this is awful, than I do about other people. And I'm so self-centered. And I can't, I can't, you know, I can't get a hold of my, my time and my schedule and my life and try to do too much because uh, I think that that'll make me look better. And I need to not do too much. And I'm sorry. And I can say that because I've got a name in Jesus Christ. And even if I lose face before you, maybe you lie for reputation, maybe you lie for comfort because it's going to make things easier, like plagiarism. It's a form of lying for comfort to get out of work. Maybe you lie for control. You deceive people so that you control them. And all these things, we're looking for something. And we need to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to show me that you provide control. You are the sovereign of the universe. And you have my life. We turn to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I need to look for, to you for comfort. Show me that your peace is enough. And your promise is enough. And woo me away. Repent, he says. 
But why turn and why turn continually? Because what Jesus offers is better. I had a friend who uh, recently um, got done with Halloween, and he was confessing that uh, unlike all the other Halloweens before where he would um, wait till his kids went to sleep and then mow through their candy, right? You know what we're talking about, parental tax. It's okay, they're in the room. It's okay, just nod your heads. Um, he said this year he was not tempted to do that at all. And he said, and, and here's why. He goes, I really could care less about, and no offense to Milky Way and Hershey's, but that, that chocolate just looks kind of waxy and gross to me. And what happened was, he's like, ever since my friends brought me the Swiss chocolate, I've been eating the Swiss chocolate, and then I go and I buy the Swiss chocolate, and I eat a little less of it. And now, uh, these, uh, these candies that, that my kids have, they actually are just not appealing at all. You know, most of the time when we try to repent, uh, what we say is, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't eat that candy. Don't eat that Hershey's. Guess what? It's not going to work. The only way that you will turn from Hershey's and Reese's Pieces and whatever is if you find Trader Joe's dark chocolate peanut butter cuffs. <laughs> you have to turn. But what causes you to turn is that you have found something better something more satisfying, something more lovely. Jesus says, this is why you turn to me. Because these are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. I see all and know all, and I see the end from the beginning, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I have the bronze that you want. The ginger's not only in Grasmere, and the bronze is not only in Thyatira. And guess what? I have everything you want and everything you need. And so you follow me, and you will come out on top. Because I have everything that you need. It was a CEO of Under Armour, Kevin Plank, who said, The best merchants in the world aren't the ones predicting what's cool next. They're the ones dictating what's cool next. Jesus doesn't predict the future. Jesus knows the future because he controls the future and he controls your future. So stick with him. Let me close with this vision of the Son of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Weep no more. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And now to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Worship Jesus. Amen. Amen.